All right, Pat, we're making our way down the line. Season three, episode four, entitled Oath Keeper. This is a pretty momentous episode within season four for a lot of different reasons, but I found that this damn well might be my favorite episode of this first couple episodes. We haven't even gotten into, like, as Chris loves to say all the time, the meat and potatoes of this season. What are, what are, what are your thoughts before we get started? Hey, Dom, I think the, uh, you know, Talking TV family will agree with me that Oath Keeper is exactly what we see in this episode. I, I don't think I have a snarky comment to give today. Uh, I think it's a great episode, and I think it's a great name for a sword, to be honest Absolutely. with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. All that and more on tonight's episode of Talking Thrones. You know, Pat, it's interesting because going into this episode, I'm expecting a very similar fourth episode to last season, since this season seems to be following along with like kind of the structure pattern that last season set up, where we would kind of get like a slow plotting thing all the way up until like the last three scenes, which would all be awesome and like all setting up for like major future events that would happen later on. And I got to say, I was thoroughly, very thoroughly surprised in this when not only did we get like an actually like really well written, like kind of character drama, like, but, but again, a lot more chess pieces being moved into formation, you know, a lot more like setting up for future things that were going to come to pass a lot of quick resolutions to things that were already set up and ending with again, like a rather unexpected, like interesting setup for another banger midpoint next week. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts going into this one? Uh, Dom, I'm still, uh, you know, surprised uh, that I totally missed that lock is it came to town at the wall oh and then it's God. the same lock uh that works for the boltons it's pretty um, it's pretty convincing i even have written in my notes he's like wow he's very very convincing as far as how good of a liar he is like he's so good of a liar that he almost makes you like forget that he works for the boltons yeah for me i i totally i you know i've been hoodwinked like three times now because uh, every time he shows up in the you know night's watch i'm like oh yeah this is a good fighter you know <laughs> it came out of nowhere john has some help and uh you know it's i don't know why but I, I i guess uh you know when they go and fight the mutineers and they have the whole like kind of a uh, switcheroo uh you know i just for some reason i never put it together that this was uh the lock from bolton's until uh uh, until this watch through. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's one of those things where this particular storyline of Locke going to find, you know, Bran and whatnot could have been a little bit stronger, in my opinion, because uh, it doesn't really last that long. And, you know, it's not really uh, 100% uh, clear. There's no real arc to it, you know? Yeah, well, the, the interesting thing, like I said, I, th that goes into, like, I feel like the big point that I wanted to bring up before we got into, like, the plot of this episode. Because, again, I, th this episode is very succinct as far as how it places its action. I think it's very, very smart. Again, it's all in the writing. This is the fourth episode of the show written by Brian Cogman, who previously wrote Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. Um, what's it called? What is Dead May Never Die? And Kiss by Fire, which are famously at least two out of those three are, in my opinion, two of the best episodes of the show ever written. And this guy also, again, writes arguably... One of the, again, it, this uh, this season is so jam packed full of events. You could have your pick of the litter as far as which one is like the biggest episode. But he writes the also writes the laws of gods and men, which is the famous Tyrion trial episode. But the biggest, the, the number one note that I had written at the top of my notes here is this is to me the episode where the differentiation between the books and the show really really begins because there are a lot of stuff that I have here. Like I feel like every other note for like yeah, every hit, hit me I have with here, a couple of uh. Well, so for uh, starters, obviously, so you know about the whole Night's Watch mutineer plot. That's completely original to the show. That never happens. The other thing, and this kicks off right with our opening scene in the show when we check in with Daenerys and Essos, is the beginning of the Missandei Grey Worm romance arc, which is a thing that never happens in the books, mostly because of, again, just another notable difference that I feel like also happened in this episode. Some significant age differences because Missandei, who was a full-grown woman in the show, was only a nine-year-old girl in the books. So needless to say, it would be a little weird if there was some sort of Grey Worm Missandei action going on in the books to say the least so <laughs> that was thing number one thing number two that I also had obviously the Jamie and Braun set up and how that really never happened because Jamie trains with Ilan Payne in the books um the other thing also is uh if I'm not everything going on with Ollie as well you know how they, they this is the, you know after the follow-up with Ollie after his introduction last season and how they're continuing to sow the seeds and that eventually build up to him uh killing Egret. like I said a lot of different things that are introduced here in order to again puff up because again 
Storm of Swords, as I said, this season takes up like the last third of Storm of Swords was like that much book page. So like they really have to relish and add a lot of stuff. And I think that unlike some of the later seasons when they really just full on go off on their own and really deviate from the books, the stuff that they have here really helps accentuate the subject matter. And I think really propels it forward. You know, I don't know. As a, Pat, as a non-book reader, does any of that stuff that I just told you mean anything to you? Yeah, well, I, I say, you know, Masande and Grey Worm, you know, having a little bit of a budding romance throughout the show kind of keeps the characters relevant. You know, I think they're fan favorites. And uh, I, I think, you know, them sort of, you know, having that relationship and having it strong uh, basically, you know, gives the, the audience at home something to root for. So definitely, you know, uh, the characters are not, you know, this huge age difference in the show. So it totally... Uh, works, you know. You know, remember the books are, are totally separate. You got to yep. view the television show separately from to the a certain books. extent. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's 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 its own property, but you know, obviously, it's based on the books. So you, you know, the only thing you can do is compare. Like, oh, the books did it this way. The show did it this way. Uh, do I think one did better than the other? You know, and then you can get a little more critical about it. And you know, hey, the the format of books. Uh, you could do certain things in television. You you can't do them. So yeah. you know it's it's one of those things where it, it depends on how analytical you want to get into it. But uh, for the most part, they are separate things. And absolutely. Um, in terms of uh, like Braun and Jamie, uh, again, you know it's it's Braun is a fan favorite. I think in the show and and to keep him relevant and to keep him uh, you know playing uh, in, in the Game of Thrones, he has to be teamed up with someone uh, that's going to remain in, in King's yeah. Landing in that equals Jamie. So I think they planted the seed pretty early to, to keep Braun relevant throughout the series um, by teaming him up with Jamie by, you know, combining his uh, responsibilities of, of training him, you know, uh, as, as a one armed fighter. So um, I'm seeing a lot of common similar threads here, which is that ultimately it seems like all the changes that they made from the book seem to be for the purpose of keeping certain fan favorite characters around versus I know for a fact there are a lot that a lot of these characters get much less screen time because Martin loves to throw loves to make up new characters just as quickly as he can come up with awesome ones. Like I know that Missandei ends up Missandei and Grey Worm both have significantly less page time in the books than they do in the show. Bronn straight up after after his final scene with Tyrion, which will actually hit in the next couple of episodes, we he does not seen at all in the books. He just straight up leaves. So that so that to me kind of is like really where it comes down to as far as the distinction between the books of the show, where George R. R. Martin could literally just make up a new character, just throw it in there in order to kind of like replace a previous character, versus Benioff and Weiss see more intent on like keeping the characters around that we have, at least with the exception of a few. But I feel that's a good segue into like kind of our plot point where the first major plot point we have of this episode it's a pickup immediately from the ending of this last episode Daenerys' conquest of Meereen it's very similar to her conquest of Yunkai in the sense of where she has Grey Worm go undercover um, you, you know through the sewers she said I, I love that shot of like the Unsullied <laughs> going through the sewers and they yeah, so up- Dom I think you just came up with a cool uh, you know spin off for this show is uh, Undercover Grey Worm Undercover and- Grey Worm I'd watch it <laughs> yeah I'd basically watch it. just for just for just for make, make the entire show like scenes of him infiltrating cities through the sewer because it, it, it's, it's awesome yeah, like every season, it's like, you know, it basically he gets delegated to uh, be, um, you know, sort of his own fighting force. And uh, he's given a task and he has to basically invade these different, uh, you know, fortresses. And every season is just centered around him, uh, you know, figuring out the lay of the land and basically figuring out how to break into that fort. Um, I'd watch you know, it. Hey, Hey, listen, you know, maybe maybe the two of us should uh, be pitching at HBO, but no, maybe we should, you know, all jokes aside, I think, um, you know, yeah, it's the whole uh, taking a Marine, um, you know, happens really quickly. It's relatively quickly. Yeah. It starts off with, you know, Masande teaching Grey Worm, you know, language and how to speak correctly. And I think this is really clever because, you know, it's she's really training him to kind of. you know, it, it is a training session, but I feel like it's training him to go undercover. Right. You know, at least I got that sense. It's like, you know, this is how, um, you know, potentially you're going to be able to speak to these other people. And uh, at least that's how I read it. And, um, you know, obviously their relationship is going to continue uh, because Daenerys says like, hey, you'll have to continue it at a later time. Um, but the fact is, you know, really quick, it's like they come in, the slaves are kind of debating what you know happened last time. And, you know, Grey Worm just uh, has, you know, uh, his fellow, you know, uh, uh, Unsullied drop all these weapons at the feet. And it's like, well, you got weapons now. And uh, the only the only people that can give you your freedom is yourself. You can you have to take it. And, you know, essentially we get this. 
um, this scene of a master walking through the, you know, alleyways, finding, a, you know, written in red paint or blood, whatever it is, kill the masters. Uh, and it turns out that basically the slaves are revolting in that moment. And yep. uh, we get a bunch of, you know, like 20, 20 ish uh, slaves kind of uh, with their newfound weapons kind of converge on this guy and, and kill him. Uh, and then it really just cuts to Daenerys in charge of the city. Yeah. A couple things that I wanted to add to that. Again, like the the common seeds throughout this, because this is really just the opener of the episode, right? We, re- we really don't get like the moment where Daenerys officially proclaims that she's going to stay in Marine just yet. Uh, the the common seeds that I see here are Daenerys and Grey. Uh, oh, my God. Daenerys. Missande and Grey Worm talking about kind of like their shared heritage. You know, if they remember where they come from. Missande remembers only bits and pieces. Grey Worm remembers nothing. The idea of the slaves, you know, debating, you know, the young versus the old, the young, you know, one to revolt and the and the and the old is kind of being contended just wanting to survive as well as um as well as Daenerys's response to Sir Barrison once she's actually taken over the city again more hints at potentially the mad queen coming out the idea that you know she wants she's going to have all of the slave masters crucified yeah, on yeah. remind the me again Tom how many 163 160 <laughs> yeah exactly like 163 well, something like that I, I, don't, I don't know but it's so, just the it's way that lot. she does it's it it's a lot yeah, she's just like Sir Jorah. Yeah, <laughs> tell me how many like, people. How many? And she's like one sixty three. Yeah. She she always does that. She loves like having. She loves asking rhetorical questions to her advisors to make a point. Like that that has definitely become a thing that Daenerys loves doing. And Barristan, again, could have done a little bit better as far as advising like the specifics of what could have come from this, as we later learn when we when we meet Krasnis Moresnis, uh, or um. Not Crescent, but Resonance. That's the slave master. Um. Oh my God, I can't remember the dude's name now. The what's it called? The um. The 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 Miranese guy who ends up coming to her, who she ends up marrying for five seconds before he gets killed at the end of season five. <laughs> yeah. She, yeah. That, that uh, is, is that next? Guy. That's next season, right? That that's whole next season line? that she marries him. But that but that guy comes into the end of this season because his whole thing is, is like, yeah, you killed my father, and like we had a pretty good relationship with our slaves. You know, as far as like kind of breaking down the differentiation between yeah. like, okay, just because somebody's a slave master doesn't make them like kind of a shitty person. You know, and she kind her kind of lumping them all together as far as like, oh, you doing this automatically makes you a bad person again more hints that benioff and weiss did have an idea of where they were going to take the mad queen storyline just in its final execution definitely not the best so i just wanted to point those things out first yeah no i, I think uh sir barrison and just uh that scene could have definitely been a little more confrontational mm-hmm. uh it's sort of like she just cuts him off and it's like yeah i'm right. doing it I, I you know it's like i meet in- injustice with justice right and Cut to uh, basically everybody being nailed to these uh, mile markers, yep. um, you know, and it's a, probably an excruciating death for sure. Like, um, you know, it's um, and probably horrific. Like, I, I would almost Very. question. Well, I, I was going to say, like, I would almost question as a slave, like, hey, you know, yeah, uh, she just enabled us to be free, but uh, she just is murdering all these people. Like, I, I guess in the uh, sense that where it comes from is a source of wanting to seek justice for the innocents, which we, we know is has been Daenerys's conquest and like kind of primary motivating factor since we were first introduced to her all the way back in season one, which again, I think it would have been a little bit different if they were adult slaves that you saw nailed to them. But the fact that it was little kids, specifically little girls too, that's the part where it's like, okay, we, we get where the anger comes from, you know? Yeah. But also like, I, I just wonder like, is it, you know, going to benefit her in terms of the crowd mentality? Like, Oh, not at all. Uh, the, as, the as slaves we come to just see got her, freed. As we come to see from her reign and Marine, it doesn't benefit her yeah. at all. And, but but this you know I think that's one of the uh, weak points of this uh, particular sequence is like we we just see the the slaves once they're free um, you know chanting the the uh, the right, Misa, the, Misa, the, the, Misa. yeah the, the Jar Jar Binks phrase right. um, so yeah but, a lot, like, lot, lot of mob mentality <laughs> or at least there. at least a lot like it but uh, they're all happy you know yeah. and and she does this kind of horrific thing and um, you know I guess you know because they just got their freedom and that's what they're focused on but uh, you know at the end of the day you could have you know had a, a couple of uh, naysayers who are, are sort of in uh, Sir Barrison's court you know like hey th- this guy is right. Um, right. You know, something, something like that to really, uh, uh, you know, amp up the uh, the conflict. But, and, I, and you I, know, that's not really the main part of the se- right. uh, se- uh, season. But, right. uh, you know, I think and, it's And that's it's the thing is I feel like because happened. that is put on such the back burner this season, I feel like 
we we got a few of those scenes in the next season once she's actually made her decision to rule Marine. But because this season is still so much focused on her final conquest of Marine, those scenes are really only done sporadically throughout, you know, and they're really just focusing on wrapping up her arc from a storm of souls. Like I said, this very much being the part two to the part one that season three set up. And then we once we get into seasons five and six and we see how her reign goes, that's when we really start to see like, okay, how she's functioning as a ruler, you know, but this is still like kind of she's still a conqueror right now. And so she's still got the conqueror mentality, you know. Moving on to King's Landing, again, th this entire episode should be the people trying to figure out who killed Joffrey while other people are just straight up admitting that they killed Joffrey. But, we, it, does, <laughs> but it does kick oh, off. Oh, that seems great. Oh, it's so good. But it's... it's <laughs> No, I'm sorry, but, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, oh, Elena uh, uh, and Marjorie, yeah. incredible. Elena uh, uh, is just like, if I have to waltz through one of these guards again, I'm going to throw myself off the cliff. Oh, and, it's incredible. and they sit down and it's like, you got to start working on, on Tommen, uh, charming you know? Tommen. And, yeah. Yeah. And all this stuff. And then it's like, um, you know, do you really think Tyrion did it? It's like, you know, I know for a fact. Yeah. <laughs> he, he well, no, it's it. like, oh, well, he may have, he may have, but he didn't. And she had Mark. Yeah. Like, oh, like, it's I just so. And I, I love that. That's a great tie too. Where like, and that scene cuts from the Littlefinger Santa scene when they're on the boat on the narrow sea when they kind yeah. of have a very similar exchange where Littlefinger is making up so many uncomfortable gestures and stances towards Santa, like the way that he's touching her. I'm like, oh, just so uncomfortable in hindsight. Just the fact that he very clearly is hitting on her and she's still naive enough and kind of in the moment of shock of having witnessed both Joffrey's death and then Dantos' death shortly thereafter. But like the, the parallel back and forth between those two scenes as far as like kind of both the killers admitting to like, I, and I think this is really interesting too. They're only admitting it to other people who could potentially be implicated because Olena knows if anybody were to find, especially if Cersei were to find out that the Tyrells were to blame, Marjorie could be implicated just as much, just as the way that Littlefinger knows that Cersei already blames Sansa for having a part in the death. So he knows, okay, if anybody were to find out, always shoulder, more shouldering the blame, you know, and kind of like the difference. Yeah. Between them. But I thought that, that 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 parallel, that cutting there was brilliantly done yeah but Littlefinger is you know definitely trying to use Sansa as you know part of his uh you know uh basically uh right his uh, grand overall his plan grasp for power everything yeah yeah so like the fact that he he felt like he had to clue her in a little bit uh and I think ultimately the idea of her being uh you know married into the house of, of Bolton is so that um you know I, I think he probably thought that you know she would hate being married to, to Ramsey Bolton uh, to the point where like he could later conspire with her to kill uh, the Boltons and take right. back Winterfell and then so, cement so his th power. Th there could be some right there could be some potential there as far as that goes. Yeah, but again, we don't know what his further we have no plot idea would because be, again that just that that to me the, the that decision to me is the beginning of the end for Littlefinger. But at the, at the very least for right now, yeah. as he says he's like, look, and because Santa says it's like why the Lannisters gave you everything. Why would you make this move against them? And he's like the Lannisters confusion. He's like he's like you you yeah. want to take power, keep your enemies confused. And I love how it's again continuing to emphasize this idea. Again, we didn't really get to spend that much time with Littlefinger in the second half of season three. So now that he's back, he's kind of re-emphasizing his plan. And like I said, if this season is like kind of the beginning of act two of the show, soft reboot is kind of re-emphasizing it. We're kind of being clued more into his plan as far as like, again, in this world where ultimate power is the only game, everybody is your enemy. And so if you, and so if everybody is your enemy, then nobody can suspect when you're going to flip the tables on them and keep them confused. Because like he said, continuing to emphasize, he took advantage of a crucial moment when the Lannisters thought that they were untouchable pulled this off with the Tyrells and now is in a position to benefit even yeah. more. Well, than it also have. comes down to, you know, the idea that he had no motive, right? The, right. the Lannisters do not think that he would have done something like this because uh, betraying them at this moment would actually impact his wealth and power. And I think they underestimated him. You know, it's like they, they kind of expected because he, you know, owned uh, a lot of the bordellos in King's Landing um, that he was basically just a man after wealth and lands uh, and wealth was his only motive. And so the fact that he, you know, in terms of the, his bids for power, always supported the Lannisters, always did what they wanted, uh, and just in exchange for wealth, uh, I think they just thought they had him bought and that they didn't have to worry about him and they were safe. 
And the fact is, like, what he truly wants is he does want the wealth and and whatnot, but he de- he wants the power, um, and that's the one thing that they underestimated him with. Uh, and you know, I think it's something that Sansa from this whole experience and later in the the series will actually learn from, and uh, she she understands because he frankly tells her in these scenes uh, what he's after, and so she knows that he just wants absolute power, and, and later on. Um, you know, in the series during his downfall, like that's why Sansa is very uh, quick to make a decision against him. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think that again, I agree with you. I think this uh, scene is great. I think it's it's. Uh, I literally fantastic. had a parenthesis after in this note right here. I said, "Conversation between Littlefinger and Sansa. The mental chess match begins. That kind of carries all <laughs> yeah. the way through until his inevitable death in season seven. Well, all we see is uh, him continuing to, you know, uh, consolidate his power. And the, the the main thing is we start to realize that he he's had this plan since for a uh, while. John John Aaron, like he right. he is the instigator of the Game of Thrones, and uh, you know it's it's amazing that he uh, has played this like uh, you know third chair uh, you know uh, clarinet so to speak, you know, like uh, to everybody else, and uh, has uh, risen up and continues to rise up, and he sort of like. Um, figured out a way that he could potentially take the the throne um you know by being issued certain keeps and then marrying into uh you know others and and really getting a, a vast amount of land uh under his control and uh I do think he made a a plan for Winterfell um you know that's the whole point of uh you know sending Sansa there uh, but like ultimately we'll never know because that plan didn't really go, uh, it didn't go the, the way, way that anyone way that he was wanted. I don't think. Yeah. yeah. Two so, more um, yeah, two more notes that I have from that scene yeah. real quick. Uh, Olena coaching Marjorie on how to seduce properly seduce Tom and by telling her a story of how she seduced Marjorie's grandfather, which is I, I, th- that scene, you know, that she's pulling from her origins as a bond girl back in the day in the seventies and one of the most underrated James Bond movies on her Madison secret service. And that scene is just, the whole story of how she tells us of, of, of like how she oh foolishly stumbled her way into his room and by the time she was done with him he couldn't make his way down the stairs she's like i was good i was very good but you're better amazing just incredible more amazing yeah. and the fact that this is the last that we see of her of this season until next season it's unbelievable performance continuing to emphasize why the queen of thorns is one of the best characters and then marjorie beginning her seduction of tommen which again compared to joffrey tommen's literal cake like literal cake she sneaks into his room without even with like when bypassing the guards like without even trying she makes she endears herself to him with sir pounce and she's like oh you know that you know once we're married i'm yours and you're mine and again already starting to endear him uh, endear yeah. him well to her uh, over sir Cersei. pounce is uh sir the fact pounce. that tommen is so obsessed over this cat it's like he uh, loves it. I, I, I you know it's it's really interesting uh, this character right because they they make him so innocent that um that he's you useless know, yeah, but it, it, it's almost like, is there um, a little bit of a, a, a learning disability type of thing? Or is he just legitimately that young um, and, and that sort of gullible? And like, you know, he just never had the chance to grow out of it uh, because, you know, it, it's like all this tragic stuff happens to him. Um, you know, so I, you know, I think in terms of a character, like they, they don't really address Tom in that much. Uh, he, he sort of is sort of a pawn uh, that's sort of a background character right. for Cersei and Marjorie to, to kind of uh, fight over. He's a tool. Um, that's all he is. Yeah. So, so I, I don't know if he's like a fully fleshed out character. But, right. But like he, well, he again, sort of, another significant age change for the book. Tom and here again, that, that actor, Gene Charles, Gene Charles Chapman is my age. So he would have probably been like, what, 15, 16 when he was filming shooting this. Right. If I, right. When when the character in the books is still only like nine years old like there's a there's a lot of like drastic aging up of the of of these characters that are supposed to be like children in the books gotcha well maybe that's what they they uh you know plan on uh leaning towards and, and getting away with is is just his his youth um but like at the end of the day like he he's uh doesn't necessarily have the wisdom as as tywin would put it uh to to really uh be a strong king and um, you know, it's a very interesting arc because, you know, uh, just in terms of what leads to, to his death, um, you know, it, it's it's he just can't really handle uh, how dark the Game of Thrones is in, right. in the end. Right. Um, Absolutely. But it, it, I always find like they use him for like comedic effect. 
um, you know, with Sir Pounce and basically uh, with the whole like, oh, this is our little secret and how easily Marjorie, uh, Marjorie um, you know, basically controls him uh, from the beginning. Uh, it, even into the High Sept storyline, uh, the Sparrow uh, thing yeah. that happens uh, next season. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where he's in full control of someone else or full influence of, of other right. people at all times. Um, and his personality, uh, doesn't necessarily shine through in this world. Uh, and it's very interesting to sort of, uh, see that as a character, uh, over the course of, a couple right. Of absolutely. Again, he's established as a person who really does not have a lot of agency on his own. And he's kind of just manipulated by everyone, you know, Tywin in the last episode, kind of coaching him on what makes a good King. Then now Marjorie in this episode, kind of coaching him on like, you know, endearing him to her over Cersei. And again, just a whole lot of manipulation going on around, but you know, who is also being manipulated here is Jamie. Jamie's another guy who, again, just cannot catch a fucking break. Every single chance, someone is trying to tell him, like, how to feel, what to do. First, he's training with Bronn. Bronn's like, you know, have you been to see Tyrion and all that? You know, after using another dirty trick in order to take him down with Jamie. Ja- Jamie's got that smug look on his face thinking he's going to win. Bronn rips off the golden hand, smacks him with it. It's absolutely yeah. amazing. Oh, I, think, then- I think, you know, Bronn and him strike up the conversation. Like, do you think he did it? And Bronn's like, no, that's not his way, you know, plus right. blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, and the fact is, like, you know, why are you talking to me? Like, ask him yourself. And this is one of the interesting things is that Bronn in this episode, uh, you know, has seemingly talked to Tyrion because somehow he's giving this advice to uh, Jamie, which could have been off the cuff. But right. also at the end, when, when uh, you know, Podrick uh, becomes Brienne's squire, uh, he, he gifts him this axe and he's like, oh, Tyrion wants you to have this. And it's like, is Bronn just getting rid of a murder weapon? Like if if. Braun wasn't allowed to see Tyrion. Like, how is he gifting him this axe on behalf right. of Tyrion? Right. Uh, so, you know, those are questions I have because I was just like, <laughs> Braun seems a little like he he might have uh, snuck in. He might have had a little bit of a chat with Maybe. Uh, Tyrion. Maybe, yeah. Um, Especially considering that we're supposed to believe that when Braun does visit Tyrion, tell him that he won't represent him as his champion against the Mountain when he calls for trial by combat. That like this is the, meant to be the first time that Tyrion's seen Braun since being arrested. So, I, I guess the I guess I see where your source of confusion comes from. But I, I, I think it comes out to all the one scene that Bron tells does tell Jamie, which is that, um, uh, he, you know, we asked him, you know, he's like, do you know how our brother, how, how we met, you know, and he's like, you represented him uh, for his trial by combat at the Erie. He's like, that's only part of it. The the only reason why I represented it was because you weren't the, because you couldn't be there because he knew that you would ride day and night again. Kind of continuing to emphasize again, it's the thing that I love from this season that Jamie and Bron, sorry, that Jamie and Tyrion are like the only two Lannister siblings that like actually do have some genuine care for each other and actually like don't just want to you know viciously murder and betray each other. And it leads to again a really. A really like heartfelt and touching scene that they share in the, in the jail cell, you know, when they're kind of talking and Jamie's yeah, trying to like throw sure. a bunch of compliments his way and Tyrion's like, oh, well, you know, uh, are we sure it's as good as you make it seem? And Jamie also relays that also in a scene that he had earlier with Cersei, where Cersei is again continuing to just devolve into paranoia. Again, Lena Hedy's acting this season on fucking point like or just the way that she portrays Cersei's combination of her paranoia her fear her conniving nature just the fact that she just doesn't trust anyone she plays that to a T and and again how she's able to still make you endeared for that character after all the despicable awful things that she's done and just from her sense as a mother impeccable writing from that sense and how like, I really feel bad for Jamie in this sense, where he's got to straddle these two lines between his brother, who he loves and understands is the black sheep of the family, but also doesn't 100% know if his brother actually committed this vicious act or not, and his sister, who is clearly melting down in front of her eyes, but is also his love in, you know, more ways than one, and also, but also who he knows is acting purely out of emotion and not necessarily out of any sense of logic or rationale. So Jamie's got to play this really weird balancing act that he's got right here. And even though he yeah, knows that- No, I agree with you. It, it, so like when he sees Tyrion, uh, basically they, uh, you know, they play the verbal joust game and essentially uh, at one point Tyrion's like, you know, I, I think when Jamie asks like, oh, hey, did you uh, kill Joffrey? And he's like, you know, ha, huh, the, the, the Kingslayer brothers, you know, like- uh, It's got a so nice th- ring to it. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, of course I didn't. And then it's, uh, what does he say? Like in response, it's like, you know, what if I asked you, um, you know, um, uh, did you kill this, uh, person? You know, like he responds, I forgot what exactly what it was. Uh, but you know, Tyrion makes a, a, a big point back at Jamie and, uh, Jamie sort of looks at him like, yeah, you're, 
you're right, you know. Right. Um, well, consistently and, also reminding Jamie is like, you know, you're king or your son. And like he's like, careful, you know, like again, like that 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 one little sensitive area that is like, yeah, Tyrion obviously knows their dirty little secret and Jamie is I oh yeah, know, he's really blunt about it. Like yeah. Tyr- Tyrion is like, you know, straightforward in the scene and you know, I think that's one of the things is like um, you know, uh and it goes back to the Oberon stuff where Oberon is about speaking straight. And so in this scene, you know, between brothers, they are speaking straight to each other. Uh and I think that's a characteristic that um, you know, uh, of some of the powerful people in this world that, that, that respect and speaking realistically and bluntly, uh, goes a long way in, in terms of, of, you know, the actual like honor, uh, that people exercise. Right. Um, you know, so, and they're allowed to do it. Like they, they, they have the ability to do it because they, they are playing the game of Thrones in such a way where they are a little bit protected, um, to a certain degree, like Oberon is a prince of Dorne, you know, uh, the Lannisters need Dorne. Uh, so he's allowed to be blunt. He's allowed to sort of openly seek the mountain for revenge. Um, because, you know, it, at the end of the day, his brother and his forces are needed to sort of secure the seven kingdoms. Um, you know, so like there's certain aspects of, of the game here that are, are very interested to see fleshed out. Uh, you know, even just in a jail cell, uh, in a conversation between these these two guys. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. And it wraps up with again, Cersei uh, asked here asked Jamie earlier. Besides, you know, asking her to kill Tyrion, which Tyrion, you know, kind of like threw back at him when they were in the jail cell before also telling him, you know, when, when Jamie's like, "That's where there's going to be a trial," and Tyrion's like, "You're an idiot if you think that this is actually going to be a trial." You know, he's like, "This is nothing more than a show for both Cersei and Father to condemn me to death," which is something that they've wanted to do for for years now since i was born and it does lead jamie to but um what's it called but cersei constantly poking and prodding jamie to go and kill sansa does make him you know finally start to make one right decision to clean up his act which again has been kind of hinted at emphasized that which is that he decides to ultimately entrust the second valyrian steel sword to brienne as well as podrick and a new set of armor and tells her to finish what he was ultimately unable to do which is to go and fulfill her oath to find lady cat you know to find sansa he's like Arya's probably dead but there's still a chance that sansa is alive find her bring her home and brienne does it yeah I, I think this is a, you know, it, it's the scene starts with the whole, um, you know, pages about uh, Jamie and, and just like the only thing that's really written about him is being the Kingslayer. Uh, and Brienne says like, that's, you know, kind of uh, sad, <laughs> you know, so, you know, I don't know if she says it in those dire- direct words, but it's like, it's kind of lame, Jamie, like, you know, you, you need, there's more to your tale and, uh, you know, Jamie sort of agrees and, um, you know, and and the whole point of the show is him redeeming himself away from that Kingslayer name. Like the world won't let him do it, uh, but he has to take action to be able to do so. And I think you're right. Like he's sort of stuck in King's Landing. Um, you know, right. between for better or know, for worse, no matter what he could potentially do to clean up his act, he unfortunately is still stuck in this position that he wants to maintain. You know, this this privileged position of as like Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. Yeah, well, he he also want you know he's trying to keep his family together. He's trying to keep Tyrion alive. He's trying to you know uh, keep Cersei um, to a certain degree like satisfied and like you know um, happy. You know whatever the case may be. Like um, you know, I guess in terms of his father, he's trying to stay out of his father's way, but you know still still keep the strength of the family. And he's in the middle of it. And I think, you know, he sees there's no hope for him uh, to leave King's Landing. Like, he has to be there to sort of try to uh, broker this, you know, impossible truce between the family. And I think that's one of the reasons why he gives Brienne the sword and says, go out there and do this, um, because he realizes that he can't do it. He doesn't have uh, the ability uh, to get away. Uh, like Brienne does. Brienne can go out there and, and that could be something that she focuses right. on. Not to um, mention getting her also out of the way potentially for like a potential Cersei assassination setup as well. Exactly. So protecting exactly. her as well. Yeah, and, and you know, perfect chance for Podrick to to escape. Uh, and I think the other thing that's great about, you know, all great swords have names, you know, or, or whatever, that's what they say. Uh, and she decides to name it Oathkeeper. Uh, this is one of those things where uh, she is you know, uh, basically, yes, the sword's called o- Oathkeeper and she's going to go and she's going to be an extension of Jamie and she's going to uh, live up 
to to the oath and, and protect uh, Sansa at least, you know, uh, the Stark girls, so to speak. Um, you know, so uh, if Brienne succeeds and she does, you know, uphold the oath, um, you know, by extension, that was because of Jamie, you know, and uh, that will, you know, in essence, you know, maybe this is reading too much into it, but that will change him from the Kingslayer to uh, someone that keeps his oath. The I oath don't necessarily keeper. know. I don't necessarily um, know if that's reading too much into it, but I, I, I do like the idea as far as like, you know, I, again, because I've read into the scene a lot as far as, you know, what it could potentially mean, but I like that idea of like, again, kind of Jamie, like accepting his lot in life, but also maybe so maybe more so like projecting some more of the good things that he may want to do that he may have learned last season with his time at Brienne by projecting it onto somebody who doesn't have as much baggage as, uh, on them yeah. as he does ultimately. So now, but, but, but I think, you know, this, this particular, uh, uh, sequence of events with Brienne sets up this idea um, that you know his story does not just have to be uh, about the Kingslayer, uh, and that you know the actions that he personally takes, the the people that he actually influences, like Brienne, uh, these are going to lead to positive things. Uh, and at the end of the day, like you know, uh, something else will be written in those pages. Yes. Um, you know, I think I think it's sort of obviously you know going through and seeing the entire series, like um, you know, we know that kind of comes back. But um, you know, for the most part, it, it's I think it's a really good setup, and it really sets up this uh, uh, you know a little bit of a, a sort of a romantic idea in the the minds of the audience indeed as, as we come to see later on but so now we cut to the north we got two major storylines that happen here again two primary setup storylines but for some gangbusters um you know revel resolutions in the midpoint next episode we have john who is training new recruits all some of which include ollie uh you know he's doing another mock uh sword fight with gren in order to, again try and <laughs> trying to prep them as best he can for the wildlings thorn comes in breaks it up again just Thorne does not know when to call it quits with John. Even when they're at war, he just has to throw shit at John every chance that he gets. He doesn't trust John. He still thinks that John is with the wildlings. He doesn't believe Eamon's claim that John is there to help them. And again, he, he even says it. He's like, you know, go ahead. Go ahead. Give me a reason. Mormon's not here to protect you again, showing he never liked him from the beginning. But the one thing that is established after the fact, uh, which again, it's a good thing that Thorne has Janice Slint on his side, is that Thorne is not a politician. Thorne is blunt. Thorne is headstrong. And Thorne, for better or for worse, does believe in the watch, but he is not a politician and he does not know how to play the game. But Janice Slint, dumb as a rock as he is, does have some slight experience in politics in King's Landing. And he sees after the fact, after Thorne uh, you know, makes his claim, he's like, yeah, you're being a little bit too brash. And John is very, very well liked. And he also knows that once they finish up the war, you know, Thorne says, I don't care. We're at war. And he's like, yeah, but we're not going to be at war forever. And when we do, there's going to be a new election for the Lord Commander. And it might be well, better yeah, off. Well, Eamon's going to push for it, right? He says right, the, old, right. the old man's going to push for it. So, right. uh, you know, he's teach, you know, uh, he's going back to his old ways, right, uh, of being sort of, a, you know, this schemer uh, that's trying to cement his, like, you know, power uh, as like a second in command. And so, um, you know, the thing that got him sent up to the wall in the first place, right. uh, he just can't help himself. He's doing the same stuff. And uh, ultimately, it didn't work out the first time. And I don't think it's going to work out the second time either. Yeah, unfortunately, it has become this thing. Yeah, but yeah. at the very least, for now, it does work because Janice's words do successfully get, um, do successfully convince Thorn to uh, greenlight the mission. But first, before John meets up with Locke, who again has gone completely undercover, almost to the point where he almost fooled you <laughs> into thinking that he was just another Night's Watcher girl. And what's crazy about that is I had almost the exact same thought process the first time I saw it, where because there had been an episode break between when Bolton first sent Locke out in order to find Bran in episode two, and then we had the so much that happened in the last episode between the immediate reaction to Joffrey's death and now we get back I almost completely forgot that I'm like oh yeah Locke was sent up to the wall yeah. again no, another no, it, thing it's completely original to the show again Locke is not a character that exists in the books at all like there is no sort of yeah. Bolton infiltration that happens like a completely yeah, I, I original think, to the show I think it's one of those things where it would have been cooler if like he's you know uh, he sent back a crow and it's like Oh, I, I've got in the Night's Watch. Like, John, trust me. You know, like, uh, all this stuff. Like, there's some a little, you know, I, it might have been cheesy. It might not have been really necessary. But, like, uh, you know, ultimately, the Locke storyline, he's just sort of gone rogue. You know, I, yeah. uh, Roos promised him some land. And so he comes up here looking for Brandon Rickon. 
um, and just sort of ends up dead. And yeah, you know, and I think I think later weird and random how it turns out. Like yeah, I, I, th- oh, I think there's a, a a scene later on like Roos and, and Ramsey are just like whatever happened to that lock guy. Uh, it's like I don't they're know. Like where would he go? They kind of just forget about him. I don't know. Yeah. So, so I think they. It, it, it's it's to me. Um, it's almost an unfulfilled storyline. Like, yeah. you know, obviously, First you know, many. I'll correct myself from earlier. I said, there's not much of, you know, it's not much of an, arc. it's not an arc, but it is an arc. It's just not that good of a one, <laughs> you know? So like, <laughs> um, the, you know, I, I think the potential for Locke going up there, like he, he comes in, he seems like a, 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 a pretty, you know, bad, uh, ass fighter, so to speak, and, right. and well, he, well, he shows he, that a lot of all the recruits, he actually knows what he's doing with this. He knows how to handle the sword, makes up some bullshit cockamamie story that John completely buys into. You know, very, very similar to the story that like Pip told him originally back in season one. Again, endearing him again. I even had this written as a note as well, where I'm like, wow, Locke is such a good liar that he even fooled. Hang on, where is it? I'm like, uh, oh yeah, Locke is also an incredible liar, like Ramsey. I'm like, wow, Locke is such a good liar that he even fools the audience. Yeah, no, it's, I think, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, I don't know why I never picked it up on it before and watching it today. I'm just like, oh my God, you know, it's Locke is, uh, you know, he's here. This is him, (laughs) you know? Um, but like the fact is, I I think the storyline could have been tied back to the, the Baltans, um, a little more like maybe after, um, Locke gets killed, um, you know, there, there's there's something, right, there's something uh, that, there. that John could find on his body or, or something like that that would, uh, you know, uh, you know, that even could if implicate him something to hint at it rather than have it just be Bran who knows that he's bad, but he's dead. But he can't meet up with John because John could potentially force all his journey to threat. It's so weird. It's so kind. Of, it's the example of, OK, we kind of need this character out of the way. We don't really know what purpose it would serve to keep him alive, even though we sent him up here with it. it, it, it it's it's kind of a mess. As, as yeah, I, I, it, I guess really I, the, I guess they give him a, a side mission, thread. which he, he dies on. But, like, right. uh, you know, it just sort of doesn't seem like there's any implication uh, ultimately yeah. to it. I think it's, also, it's not to mention the fact it's like, so wait, you're going to carry Bran all the way to the wall, avoid the Night's Watch and the Wildling completely, make your way through the Castle Black and the wall. Like there's, a, there's so many plot holes in that plan as far as the logistics of it. But it does lead to two of my possible favorite sequences in this entire season. First, Sir Alistair Greenlight in the mission and John giving his speech to the Night's Watch, to, you know, getting them together because of course, Thorne has to throw a fuck you towards John any chance he get where he's like, I'll greenlight your mission, but I won't sanction it. So I won't force <laughs> yeah, anyone yeah, to go okay. volunteers only. And he's like, yeah. fine. And he makes this incredible, beautiful speech about how it's like, you know, uh, you know, again, like uh, the logistics of why they have to do this. They have to kill these mutineers because if the wildlings get to them, they, they could drastically, it, it could drastically, you know, give them the edge they need in order to win the war because they still think that the Night's Watch has way more members than they actually do. And obviously these renegades know the truth. And also, more than that, again, he he manages to use garner the spirit of more. He channels the spirit of Mormont into them. He's like, yeah, Lord Commander Mormont gave his life for the watch, and these cowards stabbed him in the back. You know, just for, you know, for what? Well, you know, they're they're also drinking out of his skull. You know, yeah, wine. You know, crazy. which is very. If, if that's actually true, if that's actually Mormont's skull. Like once we cut up to the wild, once we cut up to the yeah. Renegades North again, first time we've seen them since uh, the end of last season. They got a completely original. For all I know, in the books, those guys are still just living up there, chatting happily, you know, casually raping Craster's women, you know, all that stuff. Well, yeah, and, uh, you know, I, it's kind of uh, really bizarre because, like, what's their long-term strategy here? Like, right. uh, but the, you know, not. it's it's like they, the group. The group of them cannot really live like Craster because, um, you know, there's a lot more of them. Uh, you know, obviously, right. you know, they're going to uh, have children, you know, with these women. Um, right. You know, it, it's like the other thing is like they're all sort of religious zealots and, and you know, they have one, you know, male child that was like, I guess, born uh, a couple born of days ago. And so, yeah, after they took over. So, like um, – you know, the women are, are, are muttering to themselves, you know, like you know, something about for the gods or whatever. 
uh, gift to the gods, I think it right. was. But, uh, you know, ultimately they, they kind of clue him in, like, you got to go, uh, you know, offer up this baby to the White Walkers. And, um, you know, they decide in sort of a drunken moment, like, yeah, why not, like, you know, uh, get rid of one more mouth. You know, we don't right. need to feed it. And of course, he has um, Rast do it because Rasty's basically made his whipping boy. Even though Rast, you can see the look at his Rast just never looks happy, first off, in anything that he's doing. You know, even though Rast is the scumbag who actually put the knife in Mormont's back last season. But Rast is just completely miserable. He knows that this is not a good plan long term. He knows that they're not going to last. So, yeah, and I think they kind of all know that. And that's kind of why they're just enjoying, like, this kind of last thrill ride. Just, and, and, you know, just embellishing and all this hedonism, all these carnal acts. Because they know they're dead. They know they're not making it through. They're like, look, if the wildlings don't get us, then the White Walkers will. You know, they, they know the stakes at the very least. You know, and again, your guy, Burn Gorman, gives one of the most impassioned monologues. Again, the antithesis to John, where John is all about, you know, putting others before yourself, you know, serving for the cause, you know, but believing in something bigger than yourself. And Carl Tannen is the complete opposite of that, in that he's all about, you know, his own personal glory, embellishing himself, how great of a cutthroat he was, the fact that well, every time somebody gave him silver in King's Landing, that person who was paid to kill never saw the light of day, you know. Kind of yeah, embellishing I think it, was, it, it comes down to, like, you know, uh, the knights he met in the taverns, right, and how he could uh, beat them all. And, right. Uh, you know, he kind of goes on, uh, you know, a little bit of a drunken stupor. And ultimately... I think part of the, the the best part of this is like he he just is sort of uh, he's bored, right? You know he's kind of angry at the world. You know he's he's drunk. You know, and when they finally do capture Bran uh, and, and the gang, and, you know, basically uh, he intimidates them to revealing who they are. And it's like uh, as soon as he uh, you know Brandon tells him like oh, I'm Brandon Stark. Uh, he just like says, Oh, and I thought today was going to be a boring day. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like all the other stuff was like entertainment. He's the best. He's the best. That um, guy is, I, I love that yeah, guy. It, it, Gorman. Amazing. Yeah. It, it's, it's, you're taking a character that, uh, you know, as you put it, wasn't really meant to be anything. Um, and, uh, you're making it real. Yes. Um, the, the like two, three episodes or whatever that they're in, uh, I think his acting really makes a statement and makes this mutineer storyline, you know, have a lot of gravitas and, and you know, it's uh, something that's actually uh, pretty fun this season. I agree. And bringing it back to Bran as well. Bran, again, hears the sounds of the screaming baby. You know, again, Ras, first of all, it's like, I, I, I do think I, I had this right here where it's like, okay, Ras does bring up one good point, which is that I'm like, why are they keeping ghosts alive? Like, just from a logistical standpoint, I'm like, bro, you have a direwolf that's going to kill any one of you at any minute and you're keeping it in a cage. Terrible idea right there. That, that's just a, that's a little bit of a nitpick that I have right there. And, well, I mean, ultimately, I think they would... Uh, you know, they would probably uh, try to eat the the wolf. You know, right? Exactly. Because, exactly. Uh, they, 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 food they, is scarce. They, you know? they benefit. They ben. They stand to benefit nothing from keeping ghosts alive. So, th so that's like kind of plot hole number one. I also had to point it out there again when Brand hears again. I haven't pointed out that Jojen is consistently looking sicker and weaker in the book. Obviously, we know that Jojen unfortunately meets his untimely end at the end of this season. But in the but it, it's interesting where even though he's still alive in the books, he seems to be suffering very physically. We obviously know from his seizure condition, but also because of the fact that again I talked about this. For where it seems that the more in touch with his green seer powers, Bran is becoming the weaker that Jojen is becoming. And I'm wondering if there was some sort of like symbiosis thing with the green seer magic that maybe got left off the table there. But also, another quick point uh, this is the only direwolf reunion that we actually get. In the show, after, you know, Summer and Shaggy Dog, unfortunately, say goodbye to each other last season, where Bran wargs into Summer, you know, they're going towards the baby, but then he hears ghost howling. He goes towards ghost and he falls into the trap. And uh, then, obviously, they go to the Night's Watch encampment. Mira sees the Night's Watch men having their way with the women, realizes immediately what's going on. And, it, and then she's like, okay, we need to go, you know, she, you know, because again, Bran is still like a little bit young and naive, but Mira knows exactly what's going on. Like, this, the look in her face says it all. She's walking away. Like, again, like, kind of casually walking look the way that i see it look, look every time somebody is it's one of those many many tropes that i've noticed from movies and tv shows before anytime that somebody's walking away walking towards a tree but has their head turned like tell us something bad is gonna happen and of course a renegade night's watcher comes out smacks the butt of their axe right into their face captures all the rest of them you know brings them before brings them before carl um you know they're, they're you know they're bullying hodor and you know joe well the best line is like if i was as big as you i would be 
king, you know, right. like, uh, and also another one of my favorite yeah. lines where Carl is like uh, pointing out that he, when he smacks Brand in the face, he's like, and, and he fi- immediately figures out that Brand is a high lord. It's like, yeah, you're wearing fine leather, you know. He's like, and he's like, he's like, now where I come from, you know, I lose my right hand for smacking a little lord like you, but we're a long way from the wall, and finally forces Brand to admit who he is, and then Rass tells him, you know, that's John's brother, that's a valuable hostage right there, and he's like, all right, interesting, you know. And, then, and so obviously, again, setting up, we know where that's going to go. We know the Night's Watch members are going to come. We know that they're going to plow through the Renegades. The Renegades are not long for this world. But so I guess just props to the writers for giving them so much interesting, colorful space as far as wrapping that up. But we have one final scene to tie it together, which, again, is like arguably the most important moment of this entire episode where we finally get the revelation of the night and the introduction of the Night King, you know, portrayed in this one episode by Richard Brake. But also we and, and I don't know, Pat, I, I wanted to talk to you about this for a little bit. You know, we're almost out of time here, but like. Do you think that this scene that we get to kind of end this episode, because for me, it's still like just sends shivers down my spine, pun intended, every single time that I watch it. But do you think that this scene properly, adequately, like kind of explains how White Walkers are created? Because to me, the fact that they accomplished this scene with absolutely no dialogue, you know, that one White Walker taking the baby to that strange ice fortress, placing it on the table. You have the beautiful shot of like the blurred out focus of all the walkers in the background and then the one walking up and it slowly, you know, goes into focus. You see him picking up the baby. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I really like this introduction because, again, it's kind of like a creepy ceremony and it sets up this ominous, like, bad guy that kind of hovers over the whole entire story. Uh, I think that succeeds, right? Th- this moment really does uh, set up, like, the ultimate endgame evil. Um, however, <laughs> the place However, where obviously, it- <laughs> given the execution of where it ends, that being completely different. Well, it's it's like the baby's eyes turn blue, and then we never see this baby again. So, right, I mean, like, the we're supposed to believe he grows up into like a forty-year-old right, white walker. He grows up and become like a white walker thing. Yeah, I mean, again, it's white walkers, it's magic, it's sorcery. So, I usually take those with a grain of salt. We don't know what exactly the aging process for white walkers is, you know. But I don't know. I just thought that like the fact that that was something that was really never even like explained or hinted at in the books. Like we even in the books, we haven't even gotten to the point where the children of the forest even give any mention of the fact that they were behind the creation of the white walkers, which we learn obviously in season six once we kind of come back to this storyline but i don't know i just i just still think it's really striking it's really visually interesting the fact that they were like trying to give us at least something you know regardless of where it goes in the end i just thought it was really interesting them giving us just a little bit of a hint you know it's like okay we obviously know there are more white walkers you know in in my mind they put the they put this baby walker in the crib and then they go and watch (laughs) this whole war uh and then they die south of the wall and the baby's just in the crib and melts uh, you know, like, I, like, there's no transformation process. I, don't know, maybe, I guess maybe, maybe like an accelerated um, aging thing because of magic. Yeah, you know, it might have been, might have been a cool scene to just like have a, a American werewolf right. in London transformation, right? Like maybe from like, a, like a montage demon baby to. Like that. I get yeah. that. I get that. Uh, but you know, whatever. I guess it's not really needed. But like, ultimately, you know, maybe from my love of sci-fi and uh right. you know david cronenberg movies um you know there's there's a lot of potential left on the table that uh you know this scene doesn't actually lead to uh in the next you know, few episodes or yes. our next season yes unfortunately yeah but so that's it that's our recap and review of season four episode four entitled oath keeper we got another banger of an episode next week so make sure you guys keep tuning in for new episodes we're already at the midpoint next week and never ceases to amaze me how fast we plow through these episodes but that's just how good these episodes are that's just how bingeable this show is and again i love that we're continuing to do this journey continuing to emphasize and relive the great moments of the show showing that the last season may have been a fluke may not have been we'll get back to it pat as always where can the good people find you hey listen um you know obviously you can find me here on the talking tv podcast you know talking thrones with dom um or you can check out my uh, instagram that I, I i am threatening your audience uh that i'll post one day uh you know at patrick w huber on instagram uh, you know, hey, uh, subscribe and, uh, you know, maybe one day you'll you'll see that next post. Maybe one day. But until that day, we'll keep staying tuned. Of course, follow me at Movie Nerd Reviews on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Letterboxd, Serialize at Movie Nerd Reviews. And also be sure to follow us on the official Talking TV Podcast Instagram page at Official Talking TV Podcast Facebook and Instagram. We'll be back next week, Season 4, Episode 5. In the meantime, stay frosty, people. 12 seasons in a short film and watch more fucking movies. See you guys keep more time. oaths, man. Keep more oaths.